Good morning. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. Um, what do you think about when you hear the word fasting? Um, some of you might think of intermittent fasting, you know, a practice that's risen in popularity since the 1960s, involves scheduling and cycles of eating and non-eating for potential health benefits. Uh, there's also what's known as the Daniel Fast, um, largely a, a kind of a vegan diet that has been used by many Christians in recent years based on Daniel's 10-day uh, fast recorded in Daniel 1. However, Pastor Tim preached back in March. Daniel's, his diet wasn't really about what was best for his body. It was about what was best for his heart as he lived there in a pagan land. Various forms of fasting are common among Catholics, Eastern Orthodox Christians during the season of Lent. Um, Protestants don't, don't have any regulated fast, and as a result, I think very few Christians actually practice regular fasting. In contrast to that, uh, you have Muslims who uh, fast as a, as a central part of their religion. <coughs> One of the five pillars of Islam is, is to fast um, during the month Ramadan. Uh, according to a 2013 Pew Research study of Muslims in 39 different countries, a median of, of 93% say that they fast there during that month of Ramadan, their most holy month. 93%. So what do you think about fasting? Is it biblical? Um, is it for the church today? Or is it one of those, the old um, wineskins we'll read about, uh, religious rituals that should be relegated to God's old covenant with Israel? If it is for us today, then what, what's its purpose? Uh, why, why do we fast? Why should we fast? And when should we fast? By God's grace, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to answer some of these questions today. Uh, in this sermon, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know my perspective here um, ahead of time, and that is this. <clears throat> I do believe that fasting uh, is a legitimate spiritual discipline. Um, I also think that it's often really misunderstood, and as a result, it's often neglected. Uh, John Calvin wrote, <clears throat> uh, let us say something about fasting, because many, <clears throat> for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity. And some reject it as almost superfluous, while on the other hand, uh, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. Either people um, make too much of it, um, superstitious, or they just think it's, it's, it's extra. I just want to be clear here before I, I jump in. I want to be clear here today that my goal is not just to get you to start fasting. I want to be upfront about that. My goal is is that you would understand what God's word has to say about fasting and, and recognize it as a legitimate physical kind of demonstration of our spiritual desperate dependence on God um, in the face of, of crisis um, or helplessness, whether that's in your own life or in the life of a, of a friend or um, the case of our country. If you want to kind of boil it down to a couple words, maybe you can write down um, it's it's a, it's a physical demonstration, uh, you know, abstinence from food or whatever it is, of your spiritual desperation. <laughs> it, it's a physical demonstration of your spiritual desperation for God, whether that's need for protection or for, um, for his justice or for forgiveness. So with that in mind, let's, let's just pray and ask for God's help as we seek to understand what his word has to say 
uh, to his followers about fasting. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we echo the words of the psalmist when he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, we thank you for sending the living bread of heaven down to earth, your Son, Jesus Christ. We have tasted that the Lord is good. We confess that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we, pr- we pray that, that you would feed us from your word today, and nourish us by the bread of life as we consider our Savior. God, help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. For we pray through Christ. Amen. I've been slowly preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today um, our text comes from the middle of Matthew chapter 9. Uh, to give you a little bit of context here, Jesus surprised everyone uh, back in verse 9 of chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, when he calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew is despised tax collector. Um, to be one of his disciples. And then Matthew, he makes a feast. Um, He invites his outcast friends to join them to eat. And so you come to verse 11, um, and the the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, saw what Jesus is doing, and and they critically asked Jesus' disciples, why why does Jesus eat with sinners like them? And Jesus replies in verse 12, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In in other words, I desire a relationship of covenant love with sinners, not not just the ritual sacrifices of of righteous religious people. But it's it's like Jesus' words just went right over the head. Um, Because they bring another question to Jesus about religious rituals specifically the ritual of, of fasting. So for, first they questioned who Jesus ate with. You know, how could you eat with these <clears throat> unclean sinners? And then secondly, they questioned why Jesus and his disciples were eating at all. They're, they're question, questioning his, why, he doesn't, um, why his disciples don't fast. Let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. The word of God. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will uh, tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. As we begin, I'd I'd like to start by by first talking about the the people that actually approach Jesus with this question. Um, I I think it's going to help us consider some background on these people. Matthew says that it was the disciples of John who came to Jesus. 
disciples of John. This is John the Baptist. So who is John the Baptist? Back in Matthew 3, John the Baptist um, is identified as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. John was the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This was his message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus, we find in, in Luke chapter 1. But even more importantly than that, um, than being a, he, was a, he was a prophet. He was pointing people to repent of their sin, to turn to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. And so it's no surprise that then that some of John's disciples, his followers, left him and they started following Jesus after hearing what John had to say about Jesus. Andrew was one of those disciples, find in John chapter 1. What is surprising is that there were still some disciples of John, we see some of them here in our passage, who for whatever reason did not leave him to follow Jesus. They were loyal to John. Um, and I would suggest kind of a misplaced loyalty to John the Baptist, that John the Baptist never intended. In John 3, we get the, uh, a glimpse of this loyalty that they had to their, uh, their rabbi, uh, for John, of John the Baptist. Um, they, they even had some kind of animosity towards Jesus, or at least some, some jealousy of him. And I mentioned um, this passage, John 3, I want to read it because John will respond to his disciples uh, with an illustration that Jesus actually picks up on um, in response, in his response in our passage. And so I want to read here um, in John chapter 3. I think I have it on the screen. If not, you can look it up in John 3, um, 26 through 30. Oh, you got it for me. Thank you, Lincoln. In John 3, um, verse 26, John's disciples came to to him and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, they don't even reference Jesus, this, that person, you know, that was across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John, he's kind of confronting their, their loyalty to him uh, by reiterating his loyalty to Jesus. It's, it's almost like they've connected themselves to, to the herald and neglected the king whose coming the herald was announcing. John continues uh, by giving an illustration to, to kind of help them understand his role, John the Baptist's role. Uh, John says he's like the, the best man or the, the MC at a wedding. His purpose is to serve the groom and in their culture actually bring the bride to the bridegroom. John continues, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, some of John's followers clearly didn't understand that John's ministry was all about pointing people to Jesus. That, that people would follow him, that, that he would increase, not John. Now it's true, it, John had this um, uh, kind of ascetic lifestyle. Uh, he, he lived in the desert. He wore uh, simple, uncomfortable clothing. Uh, he, he ate locusts and wild honey. He called people to repentance. And, and, and fasting 
is often associated with repentance. But, but John didn't live this really self-disciplined lifestyle so that people would, would simply copy him, emulate him, which they did. John's entire ministry was about pointing people to repent, to look to Jesus. That was the point of, of everything that he did. John was a herald for the Messiah, the king was coming. So first of all, we see that, that you know, John, John's followers, they had this kind of misplaced loyalty to him and to this practice of, of fasting. When John was, he was all about pointing to Jesus. But secondly, I just want to observe one more quick thing about uh, the disciples of John. That's, that's the strange, surprising association with the Pharisees. Verse 14, John's disciples connect themselves with the Pharisees when asking about why Jesus' disciples don't fast. They say, we and the, the Pharisees don't fast. I mean, does that strike you as remarkable? I mean, this is, a, this is astounding considering the fact um, that their leader, John the Baptist, um, what he had to say about the Pharisees. If you remember in Matthew 3, John the Baptist had called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, you know, poisonous baby snakes, just like their father, the serpent. And he basically told them they were hypocrites. They were destined for the fires of judgment if they didn't repent. But here, uh, so he, he didn't mince words when it came to uh, speaking to the Pharisees, and yet John's followers are actually willing to kind of link themselves with the Pharisees because they found this similarity. The Pharisees and they both had this religious, religious commitment to fasting. I think this, this shows just how important fasting was to John's disciples. They were willing to align themselves with the Pharisees as opposed to Jesus because they had, they had this zeal for um, asceticism and, and fasting. Luke will, um, in Luke's account of this, he mentions that the Pharisees and John's disciples fasted often. Um, and, um, you know, you, if you, you remember Luke 18, when um, Jesus gives that parable of the, the Pharisee that goes up to the temple and then the, the tax collector. And what does the Pharisee say? He says, I, I give and I, I fast two times a week. And he's proud and arrogant speaking all this publicly. And, and so the, the, the Pharisees and the disciples of, of John, um, they, they fasted in this very public and, and proud way. They, they fasted multiple times a week. And John's disciples are wondering, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? You know, we don't see them fasting. Instead, we see them like feasting. Here they're, they're eating with Matthew, the tax collector. And so in verse 15, Jesus gives an explanation by giving an illustration. In true Jewish form, Jesus, he responds to them with a question, with a parable. And he says, look down at Matthew 9, verse 15. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, Jesus is picking up on that illustration that John the Baptist used with his disciples. Um, and he's asking them this rhetorical question about the nature of a wedding week, um, which was, in the Jewish culture, just this huge party of, of eating and drinking and rejoicing. How can a wedding guest mourn while the bride and groom are still there? Uh, weddings are times of, of feasting, not fasting. They're times of rejoicing. If you're a parent, you might feel that sense of, like, mourning during a wedding, you know? either because it just costs so much or um, because your, your child is, is, you know, growing up and, and leaving home. 
But as much as possible, you, you save that sadness until after they've left, right? You rejoice in their presence while they're still there. Jesus says this, this is not a time, wedding is not a time for fasting or mourning because the bridegroom is here. And in saying this, he's referring to himself as the bridegroom, which is actually a remarkable statement about his identity, his deity. Um, John Piper points out that in the Old Testament, God had pictured himself as the husband of his people, Israel. Now his son, Messiah, the long-hoped-for one, has come, and he claims to be the bridegroom. That is, the husband of his people, who will be the true Israel. Jesus is God, the bridegroom of Israel. And so it's, it's a time of rejoicing because the bridegroom has arrived. However, Jesus goes on to explain something is going to happen to the bridegroom. Something will happen to change things dramatically. Verse 15 continues. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He will be taken away from them. Now, when Jesus says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, what is he referring to? What do you think? I, I, I think it's best to understand him as speaking of his arrest, his, ultimately his death. The phrase taken away may actually echo Isaiah 53, 8, which says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my, my people? Jesus would be taken away and suffer and die, and then his disciples would mourn and they would fast. But he wouldn't stay dead, right? Jesus came back to life again on the third day. And so the question we need to answer is this. Is the period of fasting restricted to those few days when Jesus was in the grave? When Jesus says, then they will fast, he, he doesn't really specify how long that would be. Was, was the fasting just supposed to be for the few days before Jesus came back to life and he rejoiced again? Or should Jesus' disciples continue to fast today? Do you see how this is important for us? That's the question. How long are the days when the bridegroom is taken away? Well, I, I believe this includes the entire period from Jesus' death until his second coming. Um, and I'm going to give you two reasons for why I believe that is. Number one, um, first reason would be that the church continued to fast after the resurrection. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 13, um, verse 1 says, Now there was an, in church at Antioch prophets and teachers, a list a number of them, and then it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and, and sent them off. As you can see, e even though Jesus, he's, he sent his, the Holy Spirit, his presence is, is still with them. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he's, they're, they're still fasting. Uh, we see another reference to fasting in the very next chapter, uh, when Paul and Barnabas are appointing elders in various churches on their first missionary journey. Acts 14, 23 um, says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. 
So the first reason why I believe it's still appropriate to fast today is because the early church continued to practice fasting. The second reason is that Jesus' second coming is the return of the bridegroom. Jesus' second coming is the return of the bridegroom. And I get that from Matthew 25. <clears throat> I don't have to turn there. Um, but uh, it's the, Jesus, he gives this parable of uh, the ten virgins uh, who took their lamps and they were waiting for the bridegroom. Uh, but you remember only five of them were ready and were able to actually join him for the wedding feast. And the context for that parable that Jesus gave um, uh, was the, the second coming of Christ. At the end of chapter 24, Matthew 24, Jesus has been talking about the end of the age, <clears throat> the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds. You guys remember that from last week? Um, and, it, and in verse 36, Jesus explains that concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if Jesus is talking about that future event, the, the parousia, the, the coming of the Son of Man, then the, the parable about the ten virgins indicates that Jesus, the bridegroom, has not yet returned. You see? Which means that Jesus' disciples await his return, and they will continue to fast. Until the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19, when we will rejoice and eat together in the presence of our Savior. Jesus' disciples will fast. So I, I think there seem to be multiple biblical reasons why Jesus' disciples would fast after he left them. Um, and yet, if we go back to Matthew 9, we'll see that Jesus has two more illustrations uh, that shed light on the practice of fasting. Let's go back to Matthew 9 and read those, um, those two verses together. Read verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. So Jesus, he uses these, um, these illustrations from everyday life. Um, in the first century, that is. <laughs> um, people were familiar with these illustrations. Uh, if, you if you try to patch old I'm not speaking from experience here, um, but if you patch old clothes and you have a new cloth, uh, when that new cloth does shrink, it will just make a worse tear, right? And as for wineskins, in that day, the, um, it's pretty interesting. The, the skins of animals were used for holding various uh, fluids. They would like, you know, chop off the feet, they would skin the animal, then they would, you know, clean everything out and then be able to to fill that with different fluids, but but if if the wine skin um, was um, was old, and you put in new wine, then uh, that was still fermenting, it would it would just break the wine skin. And so in this parable, um, and these two illustrations, the the new cloth, the new wine represent, I believe, the the new reality of Jesus and His kingdom. Uh, which you can read all about in Matthew 5 to 7. Uh, the Messiah, the bridegroom, has come, and that changes things. In context, um, it seems that the old cloth and wineskins would represent um, old Judaism, uh, including the practice of fasting. And so to understand the connections, um, maybe this is easier just to put it up on the screen here. Um, 
not trying to oversimplify things, but I understand it, that the new cloth and new wine would equal the new kingdom. Jesus, his, his rule, his fulfillment of the law, and the old cloth and old wineskins would, would equal old Judaism, kind of uh, the fasting and, and Jewish feasts. And so if Jesus says that his followers will fast after the bridegroom is taken home, take, taken from them, sorry, but he also says that the old wineskins, like fasting, can't contain the new wine of his coming. What's the solution? Do you see that problem? Do you see the problem that's going on? So, so Jesus is saying that they're going to continue to fast. Old wineskins. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get straight here. <laughs> Before you understand the tension, I should probably understand the tension, right? So he's saying that they're going to continue to fast. Um, and that will continue. But the wineskins can't contain the new wine. So how do you, how do you, how do you, fix, uh, how do you, what is the solution to both of those? How do we, recon- basically, how do we reconcile verses 15 and 16? Well, I think the answer is in verse 17. <laughs> you see it at the end? Um, but new wine is put into what? Fresh wineskins, new wineskins. And so both are preserved. In other words, you need new fresh wineskins, which would, which would include a, a new type of fasting. So how would fasting be different before Jesus left? Um, how would it be different after Jesus left than before he came? What, what's new fasting? The reason why fasting is new after the bridegroom is taken away has everything to do with what happened when the bridegroom was taken away. Jesus' death on the cross changed the Jewish practice of fasting and many other religious rituals because so many of those rituals, they pointed to, the day, to that day when he was taken away. Let me explain. I'm just going to give you an example. We, we talked about how the Pharisees and John's disciples fasted multiple times a week, right? Um, do you know, though, the, the one fast that God commanded for the Jewish people? It's actually just one. What was that? The Day of Atonement. You can read about it all in, in Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, this was the day that the Jewish nation dealt with their sin. Um, you can read about it in Leviticus 16, but let me just summarize that for you, and I think you'll see um, the connections here. On the, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would kill a bull and offer it as a sacrifice for his sin. He would then also take two goats, and after casting lots, he would take one and kill it as a sin offering for the people, entering the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, and then he would send the other goat, known as the scapegoat, into the wilderness after the high priest placed his hands on the goat's head, symbolizing the kind of the transfer of, of sin that would be taken away. This was the one day of the year when the nation of Israel was commanded by God to, quote, afflict themselves with fasting. Um, you know, they fasted from various things, including food. And they did that out of recognition of their sin against God that required this sacrifice. Now, there are a few other fasts um, recorded in Old Testament, um, and that the people of Israel keep. Um, they remembered the destruction of the temple, um, their deliverance from Haman's plot. Remember when uh, 
in Esther's day. But the Day of Atonement was, was a special day on the Jewish calendar, and it still is. It, it's set aside for fasting and, and sacrifices as the nation considered the payment that must be made for their sins to be atoned for. However, when Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, died on the cross, when the bridegroom was taken away, he made priestly atonement for our sins a single sacrifice once and for all. He changed things. Um, the author of Hebrews says, But in these sacrifices, such as the Day of Atonement, there is a reminder of sins once a year, every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. If, if one of the primary times of the year when the Jews fasted was the Day of Atonement, can you see how the, the new wine of Jesus' death and his kingdom would change the way they approach fasting? Um, one aspect of fasting is that it involves mourning. Uh, you know, what, what isn't right in the world whether that's sin, whether that's injustice, sickness, sadness, death. So can you see how the new wine of the new covenant in his blood, it changes the way that we approach fasting? It's not that we don't mourn or fast because we still experience, you all experience, the effects of sin in our world today, do you not? But when we do so now, when we mourn, the suffering, the, the death, the sickness, um, we, we could fast with confidence knowing that Jesus paid for sin at the cross. We've tasted the wine of his presence, so we yearn for his return. We've experienced his power over sin, and so we yearn for glorification. We've seen through a glass darkly, so we desire to see him face to face. We've witnessed his perfect justice, so we plead for him to come make all things right. We've rejoiced in the bridegroom, and so we fast with confidence, awaiting his return. The coming of Jesus as the bridegroom put a pause on fasting. And the taking away of the bridegroom through his death makes a requirement for new fasting. Fasting that recognizes the change that occurred at the cross. Okay. That's... That's a tricky passage, and you guys did really well <clears throat> staying with me through all that. What, what I wanted to do was to preach through that passage and then come to the end here and now <clears throat> um, answer another question. You, you know, for all this up to this point, we've kind of asked the question, is fasting really for the church today? It's kind of important to, to be able to answer, and I think the passage is pretty clear in answering that. But the rest of our time, I'd, I'd like to focus on answering the question, why do we fast? What, what is the purposes for fasting now, this new fasting? When should it happen? So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time with. And before I give you five um, purposes, five purposes of fasting, let me give you five really, five bad reasons for biblical fasting, because those are important uh, as well to understand. Number one, um, a bad reason to fast would be to, to fulfill a religious obligation. 
Uh, the New Testament never actually commands believers to fast, like it commands believers to pray and to give. Um, rather, it assumes that the followers of Jesus will fast. Um, we've already looked at Matthew 9, but Jesus also mentions um, fasting a few chapters earlier in Matthew 6. He simply says to his disciples, and when you fast, implying fasting, but not commanding it. It's kind of assumed. So don't fast because of religious obligation. You fast because you're, you're broken over sin or the sin, your, your own sin or the sin of our nation, and you're, you're desperate for God to work, okay? So don't do it for, to fulfill a religious obligation. Number two, don't, don't do it to receive the praise of men. You know, back in Matthew 6, Jesus says, um, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by, by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Number two, don't, don't fast to receive the praise of men. Number three, don't do it to obtain acceptance with God. That last verse in Matthew 6 says that God would reward those who fast in private, but that's, that's not the motivation for fasting. We shouldn't fast in order to obtain God's acceptance any more than a child should, should hurt himself in order to receive his father's love. Our acceptance with the Father is based on the finished work of Christ, his son, on the cross. Number four, don't fast to reach a higher spirituality. <laughs> in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul warns the church about philosophers and, and like spiritual gurus who would, were telling the Colossians that they were, they were kind of missing out on the attainment of a higher level of spirituality. Colossians 2, 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul continues in verse 23, these, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences, indulgence of the flesh. And to, 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 buy, to buy into that uh, false scheme would be folly. Don't fast to, to reach a higher level of spirituality. And finally, don't, don't fast um, to inflict punishment on yourself. Um, you know, throughout church history, there have been monks and nuns and many others, uh, many different Christians who've, who've been regarded as very religious people, and they went without food. Um, they even harmed themselves in order to attempt to heal their own guilt and shame. But that's not the gospel. Jesus took the, the just punishment for our sin. He healed our guilt and shame because we could never do that for ourselves. Uh, Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. So there are five bad reasons for us to fast. So um, what are some good reasons? Why should we fast? What are the primary purposes of biblical fasting? Um, these five points, uh, I've taken a few of these from, um, adapted them from a book by um, Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines. Didn't take all of his points, but a few of them. And the first one would be to strengthen prayer. Number one, to strengthen prayer. If you do a study on fasting throughout the Bible, you'll notice that um, 
that all the purposes, well, if you'll notice during this list, um, a lot of the purposes for fasting, they're linked with prayer um, in some way. And that's because it's, they have the same root. The, the spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer are both the same. They, they stem from our relationship with God, our, our need for him. And so I would just say, if you struggle to find time to pray, um, maybe just consider skipping a meal sometime, dedicating that time to intercession. Um, maybe for you, it, it actually means fasting from social media for something else, from hanging out with friends, whatever it is that's, that's taking you away from, from time with Jesus, um, is, it's worth occasionally fasting from. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, fasting, if, if we tr- conceive of, it's truly, of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for some peculiar reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. That's fasting. Fasting is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And one of those purposes is to strengthen and and to kind of focus our attention on God through prayer. So one of the purposes of fasting would be to, to strengthen our prayer. Number two would be to demonstrate dependence. To demonstrate dependence. Have you ever stopped to consider the ease with which we access food in our day and age? I mean, I, I, can, I can pull out my phone and tap a few buttons and I could have food delivered here in just a couple minutes. Is that, is that not astounding to you? Remarkable? We live in a culture where food um, and an abundance of food is so readily accessible that we often don't feel the sense of daily hunger and dependence that the children of Israel felt when they went outside every day to gather manna. And one of the purposes of fasting is is to physically demonstrate our dependence on food to survive as we depend on the Lord in other areas like, um, like deliverance and for protection. For example, in Esther 4, when Esther found out the decree that would result in the destruction of her people, she called for a three-day fast, demonstrating dependence on God to grant deliverance, which he did. In 2 Chronicles 20, a great multitude of Moabites and Ammonites came up against the king of Judah. Jehoshaphat was afraid, it says, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and God delivered their enemies into their hand. In Ezra 8, Ezra proclaims a fast of dependence on the Lord for safety uh, for them and their goods and their children as they're going to be traveling from Babylon back to Judea. And God gives them safe passage. Um, You know, if your job security is threatened because of your biblical convictions um, or your your family is facing some major financial or physical or, or spiritual need, Fasting may be a way to to demonstrate for yourself your complete dependence on the Lord. As we're brought to a place of physical weakness in fasting, we're reminding ourselves that our dependency is of the Lord, is on God. Now, it's probably good to remind us all at this point that um, fasting is not a magic ritual, okay? 
it, it doesn't guarantee our needs will be met. Um, like, or what we think our needs are. In 2 Samuel 12, King David prayed and fasted on behalf of his son who was sick, and the boy died. And so Whitney, Don Whitney says, the Bible does not teach that fasting is a kind of spiritual hunger strike that compels God to do our bidding. If we ask for something outside of God's will, fasting does not cause him to reconsider. Fasting does not change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. Fasting helps us to demonstrate to God and to ourselves that we're dependent on him. We need him. Number three, to accompany repentance. Um, In Joel 2, God says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. We, We also find fasting linked with prayers of repentance in Daniel 9 where Daniel confesses on behalf of his people, which we'll get to at some point, I'm sure, Pastor Tim. Um, or, or in Jonah, chapter 3, when, when Jonah announces God's judgment, and what do the people of Nineveh do? They, they fast. Fasting is connected with mourning, and so it's an appropriate way for us to demonstrate our humility, our, our contrition before God when we've sinned. Um, when I have one of my boys ask for forgiveness of their brother when they do something r- really rare. But, you know, when I, when I have to ask them to, to forgive their brother when they've wronged, when the brother has wronged him, uh, I have them follow that up with a hug. It can be sometimes really awkward and really hard. But why do I do that? Why do I make them actually hug that physically? Because it makes it obvious if they're really repentant or not. If there's really repentant, if there's not, they're not going to, they're not going to do that this awkward thing. In the same way, fasting, it isn't, it isn't necessary for repentance, but it can be helpful for our own hearts. You see, if, if you've fallen deep into sin, if you've chosen to repeatedly fulfill the lust of your flesh, whether that's gluttony or pornography or deceit of some, t- of some kind, if God has convicted you of your sin, it, it may be appropriate for you to take some time to fast from a few meals and confess your sin before God. But as you struggle with hunger pains, consider the one who suffered and bled and died in your place to pay for your sin. Do you see how this type of fasting relates to our point earlier in the sermon about what changes after the bridegroom is taken away, after Christ's payment for sin? We mourn for our sin um, and we may fast as we confess our sin but we do so with confidence now. Confidence that he will forgive us because Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we look back. That's the new type of fasting that we're talking about. Do you see? So we fast to demonstrate um, dependence um, and um, to accompany repentance. To demonstrate dependence, to accompany repentance, to strengthen prayer, um, and then to, to express grief. Sometimes there's no words to adequately express the grief over, over some atrocity or loss. You know what I'm talking about? Can't even find the words. Sometimes words just don't do justice to the pain 
In Ezra 10, 6, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Elishab, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. When's the last time that you were up all night just grieving the corruption of our country? The, the atrocities that are being committed against the unborn every single minute. I think it's appropriate to occasionally take time to fast a meal and use that time to grieve over the wickedness in our world today. Once again, we don't fast and mourn with, without confidence because our bridegroom and king is coming back and he will execute perfect justice. But, but it's right to grieve the effects of sin and do that with fasting and with prayer. And yet even as we fast and mourn, we, we joyfully anticipate the return of our Savior. And finally, we, we fast to convey worship. To convey worship. In Luke 2, we have this portrait of a godly woman who worships God through fasting and prayers. Luke 2, verse 36 says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. She's old, but having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She sees the bridegroom, Jesus, coming, coming there as a baby to the temple. Fasting from food is it's kind of a way of highlighting the value of what is spiritual and eternal by briefly minimizing the temporal cares of the body. Wayne Grudem observes in his um, systematic theology, fasting heightens spiritual and mental alertness and sense of God's presence. Uh, we focus less on the material things of this world, such as food, and as the energies of our body are freed from digesting and processing food, this enables us to focus on eternal spiritual realities that are m- much more important. Fasting can help us to focus our energies to convey our worship to God, but it doesn't guarantee that, that um, guarantee we are worshipful. Did you hear that? Fasting doesn't guarantee that you're worshipful. Read Isaiah 58. They fasted, but their heart was not in it at all. Um, you know, the reality is that whether you fast or whether you eat, um, regardless of what you do, it can be done for, with the wrong heart reason. Uh, you know, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, or I would add, whether or not you fast, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Fast to the glory of God. Eat and enjoy food to the glory of God. I'm going to circle back around in closing. What, why don't Christians fast? That was a question that John's disciples had, um, and it's my question for you today. Why don't Christians fast? For many Christians, it's probably just not really crossed their mind. They've not thought about it before. Maybe you've just never heard what the Bible has to say about it. For others, they consider fasting to be one of those Old Testament Jewish rituals that we no longer have to obey. That's true. 
But as we've seen today, just because we have no obligation to fast doesn't mean it's, it isn't appropriate at certain times. Maybe for you, the reason you don't fast is that you, you love food too much. That's a temptation for me. I, I love food, and part of me is like, yeah, I can't live without it. You know, what would, I, what would I come to? If we're not willing to temporarily give up something like something good, like food, in order to give focused time to prayer, we may have misplaced priorities. I, I realize there's other valid reasons for not fasting. Some people, they have medical reasons. It wouldn't actually be healthy with them, healthy for them. So talk to your doctor. I feel like a commercial here. Um, especially for an extended fast from food um, in particular. I want to encourage you, though, just today to consider, consider what the Bible has to say about fasting. Um, pray about when or what you might consider fasting from. Look at those five purposes of fasting and, and ask God, is this something that he would, he would have you do? Above all, as you fast, feast on the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Anticipate the return of the bridegroom when we will no longer fast, but we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb with our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life who came down from heaven to feed us and to give us eternal life. God, if there's people here today who are hungering but have not experienced the bread of life, I pray that you would show them Jesus and they would turn to you. God, I pray for those here today who are kind of bound in sin, have um, become stuck in their selfishness, in their pride. I pray that they would turn to you in repentance. And it may be that that they need to, to fast in order to demonstrate to themselves and to you their, their dependence on you for forgiveness. Father, we, we grieve over the, the brokenness in our world today, even in our own hearts. But we praise you for the bridegroom. We praise you for even that he was taken away because that meant our redemption. He purchased our redemption through his blood and, and now we anticipate his return with joy. A new type of fasting. Thank you, Father, for your word. Um, we pray through Christ. Amen.